0: The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, from chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for your word, the Bible, for its illuminating power, and for the presence of your Spirit among us and within us who inspired these words. Speak again, we pray, that as we are gathered before you expectantly and in faith, our faith may be placed in the God who spoke all things into being in the beginning and whom we now trust to speak new life into us now, and we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Please take a seat and let me extend my welcome once again to uh, those of you who are visiting and especially we've got some family and friends of the Prince household, it is great to have you with us. We're very grateful to God that you're able to be with us today. We hope you'll be able to stick around to give us a chance to get to know you a little bit better uh, during the reception uh, after worship. <coughs> There is never a good time to teach about the subject of the exhaustive sovereignty of God over all things, specifically including evil and pain and sin. That's undoubtedly what the Bible teaches, I'll explore that in a few minutes... The Bible teaches that everything is from God, that God brings about all things, however painful, indeed however evil they are. But it's, it's never a great time to mention it. And it's, I guess the reason is it's hard to be sure that it will land right, because it could land wrong in one of two different ways. In some cases it just seems rather abstract, you know, this is a complicated piece of theology and it can easily sort of be reduced to a bit of philosophical puzzling. You know, How can a good and loving God superintend pain among creatures whom he loves? But then you can also have the opposite problem, where it lands, and, it, and it's not that it's too abstract and too sort of philosophical, it's quite the opposite problem. It's very much personal, very much right now in your face, the reality of pain and suffering, the reality of sin. And so you've got this kind of difficulty when you want to raise a subject where it either seems... Not relevant at all, or just a little bit too relevant. The bitter irony is, of course, when we most need this theological medicine is when it's most difficult to swallow. There may have been circumstances yourself, in your own life, where um, you have experienced something perhaps sudden, some, maybe even now, um, some recent calamity... An unexpected bereavement, uh, sudden unemployment, a serious illness, um, whether your own or somebody else's. Or maybe it's a kind of longer term thing, uh, the longer term emotional drain of uh, relationships that just, or a relationship that just, sucks the life out of you when it ought to be, perhaps, the relationship that most fills you with joy and life. Perhaps it's a long-term illness. When's a good time to tell somebody who's been ill for years that this is uh, a deliberate and ordained act of the sovereign creator of the universe? I mean, I'm struggling with that one. It may be more muted, and and as you are thinking about your own circumstances, you're somewhat embarrassed to place yourself alongside those who really do suffer. But nonetheless, the pain of disappointment over something that seems so small but niggles at you so deeply, that pain just kind of won't go away because the disappointment won't go away. And you're just ground down by it. You feel sort of let down by life, and it's not easy to hear at any time, that God is in control of it all. So I'm not really sure what the solution is. Uh, I can think of a circumstance myself when, um, you know, on the scale of things, uh, not a huge tragedy, but nonetheless a painful one, a number of years ago, and I, I kind of wanted to call my pastor, I wasn't a pastor then, it was a number of years ago, um, But I didn't really feel ready for theology lesson. And so I sympathise, if if that's where you are. Um, I don't think there's an easy solution. I think the best way forward is just to, well, honestly, this this is one of the benefits. It's a pragmatic benefit of preaching through the Bible just one chunk at a time, get a whole book of the Bible and just work through it. It's not the only way to preach. It's not the only way I've preached but there are benefits to this because occasionally you get confronted unavoidably with issues and you just got you got to deal with it and that's where we are today we are confronted today with a text of scripture which perhaps more forcefully plainly unambiguously than any other declares the exhaustive sovereignty of God over absolutely every single thing, including all the painful things, including other people's sins, including all the natural horrors, and indeed even our sins. Because today we are confronted with Acts chapter 4 verses 23 to 31, which is famous for precisely this. Uh, I should say, um, I had planned, uh, the sermon title in the the outline today reflected my initial desire to preach on a number of different themes that arise from this passage, but as I reflected over the last few days on on it, I just thought, no, I think we're just going to stick with this one. Um, And so if I were to go back and revise my sermon title, I'd probably turn it to something like the painful plans of God, not the peculiar plans of God the painful plans of God. I don't know whether I'll come back another time and do the other stuff I was planning to share with you, but just let me remind you of where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, just to cast your mind back to the start of this extended episode, chapter 3, verse 1, where Peter and John go up to the temple to pray, three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, and they encounter this man who's lame from birth, who'd been carried and placed at one of the gates inside the temple. And they heal him, and chapter 3, verse 11... The, the crowd reacts with amazement and they kind of running towards him, uh, running towards uh, uh, Peter and John. And Peter preaches this impromptu sermon to explain that it's not by our power that we've made this man walk. This is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By his power, this man stands before you healed, and you should repent and put your faith in him. And for that, chapter 4, verse 1, they are imprisoned. As they're speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, and Sadducees don't like to hear that kind of thing. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And then, so you've got last week, I talked about what happens and some lessons we learned from the the trial, quote-unquote, um, and then they're released, chapter 4, verse 21, they, they, they are threatened, and you better stop talking about this Jesus character, so they're like, yeah, whatever, and they go back to their friends, and that's where today's passage picks up. So they begin, chapter 4, verse 23, they go back to their friends, and they pray. And you know it's interesting. We, we, um, if you look through all the prayers in the Bible, you, you learn all kinds of different things. Um, Don Carson great Baptist theologian and pastor, still still alive, he's um, been ministering for many decades now, Um, wrote a book going through all of Paul's prayers. Um, And the name escapes me. A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's a really good book. And he's going through all of the prayers of Paul the Apostle in the letters of the New Testament. And from each one of them, you learn different things about how we might pray. But this prayer is different, it seems to me, because this prayer is included in the scriptures not so much to teach us what sort of things to pray for, though it does do that. It teaches us something deeper about how our prayers and how our life and our experience interact with God's plans for the whole of human history. It's like peeling back the curtain on divine sovereignty. And not quite showing you what's happening under the hood, if I may mix my metaphors, but coming close to it. And so it confronts us with the necessity of trying to understand how God's sovereign plan for all things can possibly fit together with the fact that he causes his people to experience pain and evil of many different kinds. So I've got two things I want to say, and again, as I was thinking about this, the first of them expanded somewhat, and will take most of our time. And it takes us from verse 23 all the way down to uh, verse 28, or even into verse 29, and it's this. The disciples entrusted themselves to God's sovereign care, the most significant thing that they do is to recognise the fact of God's sovereign control over all things, including the terrible circumstances in which they found themselves and which they recount from the past, specifically from the days immediately prior to the death of Jesus. And they, they recognise God is in control of that and they find a way of echoing back to God the fact that He's in control of it and trusting Him for what's happening. They entrusted themselves to His sovereign care. I want to show you this. Um just first up though I say first, I mean ten minutes in, but theology lesson. Just just quick reminder. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God. What is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? The doctrine of the sovereignty of God states that God is in control of and brings about everything that happens. Everything that happens. God is the creator of the world. God made all things. He made all material things. He made all the space that the universe doesn't occupy. It comprises space. He made time itself the fabric of succession from one moment to the next that we are constrained by. But God is constrained by none of those things. He's outside of time, outside of space, and therefore able to enter all of them and to be present at every moment. It's only a transcendent sovereign God who can be present with us today and at the same time be the God who says, I am to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Pastor Neil read in our gospel reading. God is present to all of his creation. Every square nanometer of created space, every moment of created time is made by the living God. And therefore, everything is radically dependent on him for his existence. Nothing exists except by the creative decree and power of God. God, by contrast, brings himself about. He is from himself. That's the doctrine of divine aseity, from himselfness. But nothing in creation has divine aseity. Nothing in creation causes itself to continue existing. God brings about every single thing. Its existence, the way it causes other things to happen, the goals towards which it tends, all things are from God. That is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God on steroids which is what the Bible does with it. The Bible does not have a muted doctrine of God's sovereignty. And so now just, if you've got that theological reminder in your mind, now just think about what's happened to these people. These are the early disciples, it's Peter and John, the other apostles, and probably others as well, among the 120, um, plus several thousand who've since been converted, because they go back to their friends in verse 23, it's not just the apostles, it seems. And what they've experienced is they've just been imprisoned, for doing nothing wrong they have experienced both natural evil and moral evil now philosophers of uh, christian philosophers make this distinction natural evil is roughly speaking pain when it, it's it's an evil that somebody should suffer in the sense that it's it's not how the world is meant to be that's distinct from moral evil, which is a particular kind of evil evil that consists in wrongdoing. And these disciples have been on the receiving end of both, in a kind of mashed-up kind of way, which is often how it happens. They've been imprisoned, which they experience as a natural evil, but they're imprisoned because of other people's moral evils, the sins that were committed against them, and the threats, and all this kind of thing. They are victims of evil, There they are, living in the world that God has made and God has brought about circumstances which comprise pain, in which they are victims of sin and they pray the most astonishing prayer from beginning to end, their words underscore and emphasise the glittering blistering sovereignty of God in all its immutable perfection. Just look with me at verse 23. When they're released, they go back to their friends, they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, so they, they, the natural evils and the moral evils that they've been victims of. And they, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Well, what a way to begin. <laughs> Sovereign Lord. Lest anybody should be in any doubt, let's just get a few things straight, shall we? They affirm in the very first words of their prayer the thing that many, many philosophers of religion and scholars who should have known better attempted to deny that when bad things happen, God has lost control. We'll come back to this in a few minutes' time. No, 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 no. Uh, uh. We, we're, we're not. We don't play softball theology. Sovereign Lord. who orchestrated the imprisonment of which we were just victims, who is going to orchestrate the beatings that we're going to experience in a chapter's time? Sovereign Lord. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, which is everything, just in case we should be in any doubt. Remember, the background of the doctrine of God's sovereignty over history is the fact that he created all things in the beginning, There is a distinction between creation and sovereignty, by the way. For those of you who want to dig a little deeper, um, creation presupposes no antecedent created secondary causes. Sovereignty does allow for those antecedent created secondary causes. If you're not sure what that means, don't worry. If you think I could figure it out, go back and listen to that a few times. I'm not going to try and explain it in any more detail. There will be a recording on the website, and you can dig into that if you look at any really, really solid. Um, Look at Burkhoff's Systematic Theology or in anything by John Frame or um, uh, Barvink or Calvin. So there's a difference between creation and sovereignty but God's sovereignty rests on the doctrine of creation. He made all things. And they just come straight out with that as well. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, predicted it all. (laughs) Not just sovereignty, creation, but predictive prophecy, and obviously predictive prophecy presupposes that God's in control. God can't predict stuff that he's not 100% confident he's going to bring about, and they quote from Psalm 2 and explain that by the Holy Spirit God spoke through the mouth of David the second psalm, which predicts what's just been experienced. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And all that's been fulfilled. That's a a typological psalm. Like all psalms are typological, obviously. But this psalm is about King David in the first instance. It's an enthronement psalm talking about all the nations of the earth raging against the king, the anointed Messiah, King David of Israel. And the apostles do what they do elsewhere, which is to pick up that Old Testament image and show how it's fulfilled in Christ, because verse 27, indeed in this city were gathered together, just like the kings of the earth were gathered together in Psalm 2, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, aside, that's the other thing I wanted to talk about, how the peoples of Israel are lumped in with the nations now. Don't get distracted. Don't distract me with your. Okay, we'll talk about it another time. But you see, the point here is it's another way of emphasizing the fact that God's in control. He's got the whole world in his hands. See, we all sung that when we were children. Little did we know what we were saying. Everything. And unless anybody should miss it, verse 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place i mean so sometimes people say well the doctrine of the trinity that's not in the bible and of course it is the word trinity is not in the bible but people never play that game with the doctrine of predestination do they because it's right here and both doctrines of course are as biblical as biblical can be and of course what david spoke in psalm 2 about the nations raging against the old covenant people of Israel, that the apostles then apply to Jesus and the greater David. They now apply to themselves, verse 28, sorry, verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. So they're lumping themselves in with Christ, in whom this psalm is fulfilled. So this prediction is all about Jesus, and therefore it's all about the sufferings of the early church. And if you've been... If you remember at All Saints, you know because we've been thinking about this how the, the early apostles thought of themselves as continuing the work of Christ by the Spirit. Right. So just let the full implications of this sink in. No. Let some of the fuller implications of this start to sink in. Let's be a bit less ambitious, shall we? <laughs> Uh, The living God, who made all things, who orchestrates the whole of human history, is sovereign over every single thing, all circumstances, all events, all actions, including what he speaks of in Psalm 2, which is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus and the opposition to the church manifested by the, uh, the Jewish court in the first century and Herod and Pontius Pilate and so on. And if those events, just think for a second, if those events, the most evil event in human history the greatest sin the crucifixion of the most innocent man the only truly innocent man who's ever lived if that event is under the sovereign hand of god and if these disciples can so instinctively speak with such emphatic certainty about the sovereign lord who made heaven and earth who predicted it all and predestined all these things to happen what are we supposed to say about all those things that you call to mind 20 minutes ago when I began this sermon and talked about how difficult it is to talk about God's sovereignty over the painful things you all experience from time to time. Yeah, those things too. In philosophical terms, uh, the disciples here and we here are dealing with the so-called problem of evil. Uh, some of you have done some reading on this before and I can remind you. And It's not a difficult problem to understand. It's understanding is the easy bit. Uh, solving is the tricky bit. The problem of evil arises because uh, the Bible asserts that God is good and God is sovereign and that evil really exists. And it's kind of hard to work out how you get all three of these in the same brain, (laughs) minding the same Bible. Um, The temptation is to say, well, either God is not good, in which case God's sovereignty easily fits with the existence of evil. He's just a nasty God, malevolent tyrant who likes hurting people. Or you could say that evil isn't real, which isn't really very plausible, given what they say here. The nation's raging against the Lord and against his Messiah. But it doesn't make sense of our experience either, does it, to say that evil isn't real. Or more subtly, no, not so much more subtly, just more more commonly among Bible-believing Christians, it's possible to undercut the sovereignty of God. To ascribe to human freedom the kind of critical ingredient that causes things to go wrong and it's true uh, it's true that we have a kind of freedom it is not true that we have any kind of freedom to do what god has not decreed we are free in relation to created entities we are not free in relation to the creator who gives to all men life and breath and everything else and gives us the capacity to exercise what we rightly call freedom. We are not robots. We're morally responsible beings. But it's true that when you look back over your life, it's true to say it could not have been any other way. If you really want to bake your noodles this this afternoon, as if this wouldn't be enough, um, ask yourself the question... Could God have created any other world than precisely this one? Or orchestrated any other history than precisely this one? Jonathan Edwards, America's finest theologian, probably one of the finest theologians since the Apostle Paul, was one of the few Reformed minds to say, no, he could not. And I think he's right. Given who God is, all of God's choices about what to do are constrained by his being. And God cannot be other than he is. So he can't do other than he can do. He can't do other than he does, pardon me. Which means that this world had to be, but because God is infinitely good, it also means this is the best possible world. This is the, just think about that for a second, this is the only conceivable and the best conceivable of all hypothetically possible universes. It is an astounding <laughs> theology lesson. <laughs> and it's interesting, of course, you look at this and these believers do not just do the theology lesson. So what do you do with something like that? And the answer is, of course, you pray. And I don't know how quite to express this in a way which gets at the um, the depth of piety that's, that ought to be at expressed by that statement. There are are many ways in which you could hypothetically handle uh, a lesson like this. But you remember how Augustine uh, handles his confessions? How it's all written in the second person? He's he's speaking to God. We do all our best theology on our knees. Arminians do this. I'm not being beat up Arminians. Maybe we've got some Arminians among us. Um, one of the Wesleys, I forget which one, I think it was Charles, who wrote, who's the one, one who wrote the words to And Can It Be? Um, uh, I think it was Charles Wesley. Um, and one of his friends, who was a Calvinist, Rabbi John Duncan, um, on reading the verse that says, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. He said, so where's your Arminianism now, my friend? Because All of the greatest theologians, Arminians and Calvinists, are Calvinists as soon as they take to their knees because what they're doing is saying to God, oh God, please help, which you wouldn't say unless you thought he was in control of everything, would you? The divide between those of us, which is probably, I think, the majority here who are self-consciously Calvinist in our um, understanding of God's sovereignty and friends of ours who may not be, the divide is not so great if we could just come to the same prayer meeting But you see, doing this on your knees helps you in other ways. You see, what it does is it opens you up, it opens you up to the possibility of experiencing what it is that God is trying to do in us by exposing us to these painful realities. And so this this, this is the point where I'm, I'm just conscious of. Like, I haven't just lost a child. I'm not ill. I'm not unemployed. I'm not, I don't have mental health problems. Um, I don't have any other relatives who've just died. You know, we have one or two niggling frustrations, like we had to buy a new car last week because something happened to the old one. But you know, right? in other words, at this point, sorry, Ben. Uh, uh, it wasn't his fault. Somebody dropped a tow hitch on the interstate. Can you believe it? Only in Texas. Anyway, so at this point, I'm deeply embarrassed that what I'm about to say is going to... The, the danger is that it sounds so trite to people who are actually suffering. But I just need to say it, because if I don't say it now, when will I? I mean, like some other Sunday when nobody's ill? <laughs> uh, uh, how about Martin Luther? Let's let Martin, Martin Luther help us. Here's, how he, here's my favourite Martin Luther quote. Martin Luther, who experienced a fair amount of suffering at the hands of the medieval papacy, wouldn't you agree? He said, quote, I owe my papists, it's <laughs> we refer to the medieval Catholic persecutors, I owe my papists many thanks for so beating and pressing and frightening me by the devil's rages that they have turned me into quite a good theologian driving me to a goal I should never have reached. That's priceless. So that's theology from a man who's done all his best theology on his knees. The living God sovereignly ordained to turn Martin Luther into the theologian he was by causing him to suffer, driving me to a goal I should never have reached. It's the sort of thing which is expounded at length in hebrews 12. oops goodness uh, where do we begin verse 3 consider him who endured from sin as such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood you see so some of it is moral evil and some of it's actually ours But then the writer of Hebrews, recognising that sometimes we're just victims of other people's evil, says, well, look, don't forget the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Discipline in the sense of the Lord discipling us, the Lord taking us and shaping us and beating us because he wants to make out of this dirty piece of wrought iron ingot A glittering sword. Have you seen those? You must have seen those YouTube videos. I I commented on one the other week. Where the Lord. No, sorry. Where the. What's the name for a guy who bashes things with a hammer? Forger or something. Swordsmith. How about that? Takes basically a chunk of dirty, grey, mild steel and turns it into this glittering, engraved, razor sharp, four foot long scimitar or something. And that's what the Lord's doing with us. And the problem is. To get it there, you've got to keep putting it in the fire and smashing it. Again and again and again and again. I owe my papers many thanks for so beating and pressing and frightening me. They've turned me in. Well, what have they turned you into? Oh, heaven alone knows. And this is a problem, isn't it? Because heaven alone knows that this is why suffering cultivates faith in the strict sense, that the, the Hebrews 11 sense. Suffering cultivates faith, that is to say, trust in what God is going to bring about in the future, because you have to trust that he's bringing something good about in the future. You don't know. You can't see. You don't, why is he doing this to me? Why am I sick? And none of my friends are. Why am I the only one who's in my college class who's not got a job, can't seem to find one? Why am i the only one who's in her 30s and still not married Why, why is it me i don't know except that except that what faith does is to study on its knees the providence of god so as to entrust oneself to it see they entrusted themselves to his care they said to themselves We we don't know what you're doing, but you must be doing something good. And see, we get to look back and see the good that he was doing. What I was going to say, if I wasn't up against the clock slightly, I was going to point out, among other things, back in Acts 4, that um, the end of the passage, they continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Well, that's the very same phrase as you've got right at the end of the book of Acts. They continued... To preach with boldness and unhindered. They prayed and what they received was the boldness in consequence of which the gospel continued to spread and, well, look at us. Quite a lot hangs on this prayer, doesn't it? A A lot hangs on the prayer when they continue after verse 28. Look upon their threats and Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's an astonishing thing to say. Please give us the strength to continue doing whatever the heck it was that got us into this mess. Give us the, the faith not to cut the knot and find the easy way out, to try and diminish God. You know, it's so tempting. It's... Um, It's a temptation that few philosophers have ever been able to resist to say at the point where the problem of evil becomes sharpest, post-Auschwitz for example, that God was just powerless, that he was suffering along with everybody else. And the Bible just refuses to do that. Sovereign Lord. See, because at the end of that long road, Fruits that can't be gained in any other way. I'll close with a story briefly about a friend of mine. Very brief story, it's okay. Um, he's a pastor. He's not actually. He's not really a friend of mine. He's a friend of a friend. So Richard Cokin, whom you've, I've heard you've heard me talk about, he was my first mentor as a pastor back in 2000. He had a friend who was a pastor and was suffering greatly in all kinds of different ways his wife was very sick i think he'd been ill the problems in his church all kinds of other things and, and he said to him he said yeah come on tell me how things going and his friend said his friend said the Lord's hand is heavy upon me, but I'm glad it is the Lord's hand. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you that you don't let your hands off the reins at these times of pain and hardship, <laughs> even when Some of us lose emotional control you don't lose sovereign control of the universe which you created and we praise you for that ask that you'd continue to work in us only that which we can bear according to your good purposes established before the foundation of the world to do good to us your beloved people we pray in Jesus name amen.